This is Mark Steiner from the Center for Emerging Media, and welcome to our podcast of Free at Last. What you're about to hear is a dramatic presentation of the book Free at Last that was edited by Dr. Ira Berlin, distinguished professor at the University of Maryland College Park, and Dr. Barbara J. Fields, professor of history at Columbia University. What you're about to hear are the words of Civil War veterans and civilians, black and white, from all sides of that conflict. A quick advisory, this presentation contains racial epithets and graphic content. But please enjoy the presentation. Slaves became free during the American Civil War. That war began with the North pledging not to interfere with slavery. It ended with universal emancipation with nearly 200,000 black men serving in the Union Armed Forces and with former slaves demanding the privileges of citizenship. The revolutionary changes unleashed by the Civil War enabled slaves to act and to speak in ways they never could do under ordinary circumstances. As the Confederacy crumbled, black men and women seized opportunities for freedom and gave voice to long, unspoken thoughts. The Union and Confederate governments each touched the lives of ordinary people, slave and free, black and white, on an unprecedented scale and governmental agencies generated millions of documents. Thousands of those documents describe the transition from slavery to freedom. Some were authored by African Americans who had attained literacy before the war or learned the rudiments during the conflict. Others originated from men and women who were illiterate but by no means inarticulate and who dictated their words to federal officials or to better educated friends and acquaintances. The Freedmen and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland has been working since 1976 to bring these documents to light. A one-volume abridgment entitled Free at Last assembles some of the most compelling narratives. Today's program is drawn from Free at Last. I was born in New Orleans. I'm 23 years of age. I was raised by Arthur Thiebaud of New Orleans and I am by trade a cooper. I was treated pretty well at home. In 1855, Master sold my mother, and in 1861, he sold me to S. Contrail of St. James Parish for $2,400. Here I worked my task at my trade. One morning, the bell was rung for us to go to work so early that I couldn't see, and I lay still because I was working by task. For this, the overseer was gonna have me whooped, and I ran away to the woods where I remained for a year and a half. I had to steal my food. I took turkeys and chickens and pigs. Before I left, our number had increased to 30, of whom 10 were women. We were four miles in the rear of the plantation house, and sometimes we would rope beef cattle and drag them out to our hiding place. We obtained matches from our friends on the plantation, and we slept on logs and burned cypress leaves to make smoke to keep away the mosquitoes. Eugene Jardot, master of the hounds, hunted for us for three months. Oftentimes, those at work would betray those in the swamp for fear of being implicated in their escape. So we furnished meat to our fellow servants in the field who would return cornmeal. One day, 20 hounds came after me, so I called a party to my assistants, and we killed eight of the bloodhounds. 
Then we all jumped into the Bayou Farpron. The dogs followed us and the alligators caught six of them. The alligators preferred dog flesh to personal flesh. We escaped and came to Camp Parapet where I was first employed in the commissary's office, then as a servant to Colonel Hanks, and then I joined his regiment. Octave Johnson fought as a Union soldier during the Civil War. The North began the war firmly committed to a policy of non-interference with slavery. In public statements and formal resolutions, President Abraham Lincoln and the U.S. Congress reiterated that the federal government sought only to restore the seceded states to the Union. When a resident of Missouri, a slave state that had not seceded, asked for clarification of the official policy, a northern general quickly obliged. Sir, last evening, a gentleman of the highest respectability and intelligence from Greene County, Missouri, asked me whether I supposed it was the intention of the United States government to interfere with the institution of Negro slavery in Missouri or any slave state, or impair the security of that description of property. Of course, my answer was most unqualifiedly and almost indignantly in the negative. Will you be good enough to spare from your engrossing military duties so much time as may be required to say whether I answered correctly? Sir, I have no special instructions on this head from the War Department, but I should as soon expect to hear that the orders of the government were directed towards the overthrow of any other kind of property as of this in Negro slaves. I am not a little astonished that such a question could be seriously put. Already since the commencement of these unhappy disturbances, slaves have escaped from their owners and have sought refuge in the camps of United States troops from northern states and commanded by a northern general. They were carefully sent back to their owners. An insurrection of slaves was reported to have taken place in Maryland. A northern general offered to the executive of that state the aid of northern troops under his own command to suppress it. I repeat it, I have no special means of knowledge on this subject, but what I have cited and my general acquaintance with the statesmanlike views of the president makes me confident in expressing that opinion. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, William S. Harney. Despite federal policy, slaves maintained from the outset that the war was about their freedom. The movement of Union troops into the slave states created opportunities for slaves to act upon that belief. John Boston, a runaway slave from Maryland, took refuge with a New York regiment. The triumph of his own liberation was tainted by the resulting separation from his wife. Daniel, come here. A letter from your father. Here, I'll read it to you. My dear wife, it is with great joy I take this time to let you know where I am. I am now in safety in the 14th Regiment of Brooklyn. This day, I can address you, thank God, as a free man. I had a little trouble in getting away, but as the Lord led the children of Israel to the land of Canaan, so he led me to the land where freedom will reign in spite of earth and hell. I am with a very nice man and have all that heart can wish. But, my dear, I can't express my great desire that I have to see you. Dear wife, I must close. 
Rest yourself contented. I am free. I want you to write to me soon as you can, without delay. Direct your letter to the 14th Regiment, New York State Militia, Uptons Hill, Virginia, in care of Mr. Cranford Comrie. Write, my dear, soon as you can. Your affectionate husband, <laughs> kiss Daniel for me. Give my love to father and mother, John Boston. My opinion is that the laws of the state of Kentucky are in full force and that Negroes must be surrendered on application of their masters or agents or delivered over to the sheriff of the county. We have nothing to do with them at all and you should not let them take refuge in camp. William Tecumseh Sherman. Slaveholders expected the federal government to make good its pledge to respect slavery. When fugitive slaves found refuge in Union camps, their owners demanded their return. Northern officers and soldiers usually obliged. However, some Yankees defied that policy. A Maryland slave owner complained of the hostile reception he received when he tried to retrieve three runaways. On or about the 14th of November last, I proceeded to Camp Fenton, near Port Tobacco, to get three of my servants. A man about 24 years of age, a boy about 17 years of age, and a boy some 13 or 14 years of age, who had left their home, taken up their abode with the soldiers at the camp. Colonel Graham, who was in command at the time, gave an order to the officer of the day to search the camp for my servants, but at the same time, intimated I might meet with some difficulty as a portion of his troops were abolitionist. I learned by some of the soldiers my servants were in camp. And well, soon as my mission became general known, a large crowd collected and followed me, crying, shoot him, bayonet him, kick him, kill him, pitch him out, the nigger stealer, the nigger driver. And at first their threats were accompanied with a few stones thrown at me which very soon became an almost continued shower of stones, a number of which struck me, but did me no serious damage. And seeing that the officer who accompanied me took no notice of what was going on, and fearing that some of the soldiers would put their threats of shooting me into execution, well, I informed him that I would not proceed any farther. Now, about this time, Lieutenant Edmund Harrison came to my assistance, and he swore he would shoot the first man who threw a stone at me. The soldiers hooted at him and continued throwing. I left camp without getting my servants and have not been favored to get them yet. A.J. Smoot. As the Union Army occupied territory in the Confederate States, slaves fled in growing numbers. Northern officers and soldiers found it impossible to exclude the runaways from their camps. Writing from New Bern, North Carolina, General Ambrose E. Burnside informed his superiors of circumstances that had become commonplace wherever Union troops encountered a large slave population. 
I have the honor to report the following movements in my department. Our forces occupied this city and succeeded in restoring it to comparative quietness by midnight on the 14th, and it is now as quiet as a New England village. Nine-tenths of the depredations on the 14th, after the enemy and citizens fled from the town, were committed by the Negroes, before our troops reached the city. They seem to be wild with excitement and delight. They are now a source of very great anxiety to us. The city is being overrun with fugitives from surrounding towns and plantations. Two have reported themselves to have been in the swamps for five years. It would be utterly impossible if we were so disposed to keep them outside of our lines as they find their way to us through woods and swamps from every side. By my next dispatch, I hope to report to you a definite policy in reference to this matter. A. E. Burnside. A week later, General Burnside remarked, Negroes continue to come in, and I am employing them to the best possible advantage, a principal part of them on some earth fortifications in the rear of the city. General Burnside was not the only northerner who saw that fugitive slaves could be put to work for the Union. Thousands of ex-slaves were already driving teams, building fortifications, attending patients in hospitals, and cooking and washing for officers and soldiers. Since the Confederates were mobilizing slave labor on behalf of their war effort, protecting slavery aided the enemy and handicapped the Union cause. This logic was the foundation for the Confiscation Act of July 1862, which freed slaves once they came into Union lines and authorized their employment by the armed forces. General, you will bear me witness I have no trouble on the Negro subject. But there is, as it seems to me, so much good sense in the following extract from a letter to me from one of the best colonels this state has in the service that I have yielded to the temptation to send it to you. It is as follows. I hope under the confiscation bill just passed by Congress to supply my regiment with a sufficient number of contrabands to do all the extra duty labor of my camp. I have now 60 men on extra duty as teamsters whose places could just as well be filled with niggers. We do not need a single Negro in the Army to fight, but we could use to good advantage about 150 with a regiment as teamsters and for making roads and chopping wood and policing camp, etc. There are enough soldiers on extra duty in the Army to take Richmond or any other rebel city if they were in the ranks instead of doing Negro work. I have but one remark to add and that in regard to the Negroes fighting. It is this. When this war's over, and we have summed up the entire loss of life it has imposed on the country, I shall not have any regrets if it is found that a part of the dead are niggers, and that all are not white men. Samuel J. Kirkwood, Governor of the State of Iowa. Glory, glory. Hallelujah, when I lay my burden down, I'm going to meet my dear old mother, when I lay my burden down. 
A war that was fought to preserve the Union became a war that destroyed slavery when President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery remained legal in Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, the four slave states that had remained in the Union. The proclamation also exempted Tennessee and parts of Virginia and Louisiana, which had already come under Union control and were no longer a part of the Confederacy. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, on this first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states thereof are and henceforward shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons, and upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Lincoln's words inspired hope among slaves and dread in the Confederacy. Emboldened by the pronouncement of freedom and armed by Union officers, slaves who had escaped to the federal post at Corinth, Mississippi, set out for their old homes to liberate others. When one of them was captured 60 miles from Corinth, a Confederate officer sought instructions from headquarters about how to proceed. You will oblige me by sending instructions in reference to the manner of disposing of Negroes, runaways, caught by my scouts. Now, on yesterday, a Negro was caught armed and killed two dogs in the attempt to catch him. They finally shot himself, inflicting a severe wound. After which, he stated that he was from Corinth and that on the night of the first instant, the Negroes were assembled at that place and that officers attended, making lectures and stating that they were free. The Negroes, after receiving each a pistol, a six-shooter, were instructed to go to the vicinity of their respective homes and act as missionaries or in the recruiting service. I wish to know how to deal with them when caught. The reply left no doubt about the determination of Confederate authorities to give no quarter. When you take Negroes with arms evidently coming out from the enemy's camp, proceed at once to hold a drumhead court martial and if found guilty, hang them on the spot. The promise of freedom announced by the Emancipation Proclamation reached deep into the Confederacy. Outposts controlled by Union forces attracted fugitive slaves from hundreds of miles away. Runaways who set out to test the intentions of the Yankees subsequently ventured back to their old homes to claim their families, spreading the word of freedom. 
Captain Charles B. Wilder, who supervised fugitive slaves at Fortress Monroe, Virginia, explained in testimony before a War Department commission that communication between Union and Confederate territories informed slaves about the opportunities that beckoned behind federal lines. How many of the people called contrabands have come under your observation? Some 10,000 have come under our control. This is the rendezvous. They come here from all about, from Richmond and 200 miles off in North Carolina. There was one gang that started from Richmond 23 strong, and only three got through. In your opinion, is there any communication between the refugees and the black men still in slavery? Yes, sir. We've had men here who've gone back 200 miles. Hmm. In your opinion, if a change in our policy which would cause them to be treated with fairness became known, their wages punctually paid, employment furnished them in the army, would it have any effect upon others in slavery? <laughs> yes, sir. Thousands upon thousands. I went to Suffolk a short time ago to inquire into the state of things there, and the colored people actually sent a deputation to me one morning before I was up, wanting to know if we put black men in irons and sent them off to Cuba to be sold, or set them at work and put balls on the legs and whipped them just as in slavery because that was the story up there. And they were frightened and didn't know what to do. Well, when I got at the feelings of these people, I found that they were not afraid of the slaveholders. They said that there was nobody on the plantations but women, and they were not afraid of them. One woman came through 200 miles in men's clothes. Well, I found hundreds who had left their wives and families behind. So I asked them, well, why'd you come away and leave them there? I am going back again after my wife, when I've earned a little money. And I found that they had heard these stories and wanted to come and see how it was. And I've had them come to me to borrow money or to get their pay if they hadn't earned a month's wages and to get prices. I am going for my family. Well, well, well are you not afraid to risk it? No, I know the way. <laughs> colored men will help colored men and they will work along by the bypass and get through. In that way, I have known quite a number who've gone up from time to time in the neighborhood of Richmond, and several have brought back their families. Well, some I never heard from. Fifty came this morning from Yorktown, who followed Stoneman's cavalry when they returned from their raid. What did you bring them for? Why, they followed us. We could not stop them. So I asked one of the men about it. And he said that they would leave their work in the field as soon as they found the soldiers were Union men and follow them sometimes without hat or coat. They would take the best horse that they could get, and everywhere they rode, they would take fresh horses and leave the old ones and follow on. And so they came in. Some men who came here from North Carolina knew all about the proclamation, and they started on the belief in it. But they had heard these stories, and they wanted to know how it was. Well, I gave them the evidence, and I have no doubt their friends will hear of it.
As the war escalated and the Confederacy lost territory, slaveholders tightened discipline, making escape more difficult and punishment more severe. After the war, a former slave from Tennessee described the grim consequences of his failed attempt to reach Union lines. Last spring, I was living with Bartlett Siles about eight miles from Somerville near McCullers. One evening, some Confederate soldiers or guerrillas come along, and they told me to feed their horses. I was at the barn getting corn and stayed longer than they thought I should. When I went back to the house, they told me they were going to whip me in the morning. So that night, I took an old mare and went down to the ferry across Wolf River. I was going to Lafayette Depot to get into the Federal lines, when Andrew Johnson, who lives close to the ferry, took me and kept me until Billy Simons come along to carry me back to Bartlett's house. Then Siles took me down to the woods, tied my hands, pulled him up over my knees and put a stick to under my knees. Then he took his knife and castrated me and cut off the lope of my left ear. He made a colored man named Dallas help hold me down. Archie Vaughn. Moses, Moses, don't you let King Pharaoh overtake you. Moses, Moses, don't you let King Pharaoh overtake you. Moses, Moses, don't you let King Pharaoh Rarely did liberated slaves turn the tables on those who tormented them in bondage. A Union officer recounts the unusual punishment of a civilian prisoner in his camp. On Tuesday, May 10th, William H. Clopton was brought in by the pickets. He had been actively disloyal, so that I held him as a prisoner of war and have sent him as such to Fortress Monroe. He has acquired a notoriety as the most cruel slave master in this region. But in my presence, he put on the character of a sniveling saint. I found half a dozen women among our refugees, whom he had often whipped unmercifully, even bearing their whole persons for the purpose in the presence of whites and blacks. I laid him bare, and putting the whip into the hands of the women, three of whom took turns in settling some old scores on their master's back. A black man, whom he had abused, finished the administration of poetical justice. And even in this scene, the superior humanity of the blacks over their white master was manifest in their moderation and backwardness. I wished that his back had been as deeply scarred as those of the women, but I abstained and left it to them. Edward A. Wilde. The inconsistency of waging war against slavery in the Confederacy while tolerating it within the Union led some slaves to wonder if they were free or still in bondage. 
Annie Davis of Maryland asked President Lincoln directly, Mr. President, it is my desire to be free, to go to see my people on the eastern shore. My mistress won't let me. You will please let me know if we are free and what I can do. I write to you for advice. Please send me word this week or as soon as possible. And oblige, Annie Davis. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. The Emancipation Proclamation transformed the Union Army into an army of liberation. It invited black men to join the fight for freedom as full-fledged soldiers, not just military laborers. The revolutionary implications of the Union's decision to enlist black soldiers registered immediately in the Confederacy. A Confederate commander ordered the removal of slave men beyond the reach of federal recruiters. General. The policy of our enemy in arming and organizing Negro regiments is being pushed to formidable proportions. Our plantations are made his recruiting stations. And unless some check can be devised, a strong and powerful force will be formed, which will receive large additions as he advances on our territory. More than 1,000 recruits, in some cases, organized on the plantations and forced into the ranks were made in the recent raid on Monroe. Now, when we fall back, as little as possible should be left for the enemy. Able-bodied male Negroes and transportation should be carried back in advance of our troops. Every sound male black left for the enemy becomes a soldier whom we have afterwards to fight. Many black soldiers in the Union Army feared the treatment they would receive if captured by the enemy. Confederate President Jefferson Davis announced that black men captured in arms would be treated not as prisoners of war, but as insurrectionary slaves. As such, they were subject to punishments ranging from re-enslavement to execution. Hannah Johnson of Buffalo, New York, the daughter of a slave and the mother of a soldier, urged President Lincoln to guarantee the proper treatment of captured black soldiers and in the process instructed him on his duty as emancipator. Excellent, sir. My son went in the 54th Regiment. I am a colored woman, and my son was strong and able as any to fight for his country and the colored people have as much to fight for as any. My father was a slave and, and escaped from Louisiana before I was born, more than 40 years ago. Now, I know it is right that a colored man ought to go and fight for his country, and so ought to a white man. 
I know that a colored man ought to run no greater risk than a white. His pay is no greater. His obligation to fight is the same. So why ought not his enemies be compelled to treat him the same, made to do it? My, my son fought at Fort Wagner, but thank God he was not taken prisoner, as many were. I thought about this thing before I let my boy go, but they said Mr. Lincoln would never let them sell our colored soldiers for slaves. If they do, he would get them back quick. He would retaliate. He would stop it. Nah, Mr. Lincoln, don't you think you ought to stop this thing and make them do the same by the colored men? They have lived in idleness all their lives on stolen labor and made savages of the colored people. But now they're so furious because the coloreds are proving themselves to be men. You must put the rebels to work in state prisons to making shoes and things if they sell our colored soldiers till they let them all go and give their wounded the same treatment. It would seem cruel, but there no other way. And a just man must do hard things sometimes that show him to be a great man. They tell me, some do, you would take back the proclamation. No, don't do it. When you are dead and in heaven, in a thousand years, that action of yours will make the angels sing your praises. I know it. Ought one man to own another law for or not? Who made the law? Surely the poor slave did not, so it is a wicked, horrible outrage. There's no sense in it. Robbing the colored people of their labor is but a small part of the robbery. Their souls are almost taken. They are made brutes of. Often you know all about this. Will you see that the colored men fighting there are fairly treated? You ought to do this and do it at once. Not let this thing run along. Meet it quickly and manfully and stop this mean, cowardly cruelty. We poor press ones appeal to you and ask for fair play. Yours, for Christ's sake, Hannah Johnson. While the federal government objected when the Confederacy treated captured black soldiers differently than white prisoners of war, the Union itself discriminated against the black men in its army. Black soldiers were more often detailed to dig ditches than fight battles. They received inferior arms and equipment. They were barred from serving as commissioned officers. And every payday brought a reminder of the most galling inequity of all. Black soldiers were paid less for their services than white soldiers. This policy angered black soldiers and ignited a firestorm of protest. Writing directly to President Lincoln, a corporal from Massachusetts stated his comrade's case for equal pay. Your Excellency will pardon the presumption of an humble individual like myself in addressing you, but the earnest solicitation of my comrades in arms, besides the genuine interest felt by myself in the matter, is my excuse for placing before the executive head of the nation our common grievance. Are we soldiers or are we laborers? We are fully armed and equipped have done all the various duties pertaining to a soldier's life, have conducted ourselves to the complete satisfaction of general officers who were, if anything, prejudiced against us, 
but who now accord us all the encouragement and honor due us. We have shared the perils and labor of reducing the first stronghold that flaunted a traitor's flag. And more, Mr. President. Today, the Anglo-Saxon mother, wife, or sister are not alone in tears for departed sons, husbands, and brothers. The patient, trusting defendants of Africa's climb have dyed the ground with blood in defense of the Union and democracy. Men, too, Your Excellency, who know in a measure the cruelties of the iron heel of oppression, which in years gone by the very power their blood is now being spilled to maintain, ever ground them to the dust. But when the war trumpet sounded o'er the land, when men knew not the friend from the traitor, the black man laid his life at the altar of the nation, and he was refused. When the arms of the Union were beaten in the first year of the war, and the executive called for more food for its ravaging maw, again the black man begged the privilege of aiding his country in her need to be again refused. And now he is in the war. And how has he conducted himself? Let their dusky forms rise up out of the miles of James Island and give the answer. Let the rich mold around Wagner's parapets be upturned, and there will be found an eloquent answer. Obedient and patient and solid as a wall are they. All we lack is a paler hue and a better acquaintance with the alphabet. Now, Your Excellency, we have done a soldier's duty. Why can't we have a soldier's pay? If you, as chief magistrate of the nation, will assure us of our whole pay, we are content our patriotism and enthusiasm will have a new impetus to exert our energy more and more to aid our country. Not that our hearts ever flagged in devotion, spite the evident apathy displayed in our behalf, but we feel as though our country spurned us now we are sworn to serve her. Please, give this a moment's attention. James Henry Gooding Angered by their second-class status within the Union Army, black soldiers yearned to demonstrate their fitness for freedom and equality. The ultimate test came on the battlefield. When recruitment of black troops began, most white northerners doubted that they would fight as bravely as their white comrades. Black soldiers were eager to prove them wrong, and before long, they got a chance. Reporting on the Battle of Port Hudson, Louisiana, a white officer in a regiment of former slaves observed that their performance had changed the minds of many skeptics. We went to action about 6 a.m. and was under fire most of the time until sunset. The very first thing, after forming line of battle, we were ordered to charge. My company was apparently brave, yet well, they are mostly contrabands and... I must say, I, I entertain some fears as to their pluck. But I have now none. The moment the order was given, they entered upon its execution. Valiantly did the heroic descendants of Africa move forward, cool as if marshaled for dress parade, under her most murderous fire from the enemy's guns, until we reached the main ditch which surrounds the fort now. Finding it impassable, we retreated under orders to the woods and deployed as skirmishers. In the charge, we lost our captain and color sergeant. The latter fell wrapped in the flag he had so gallantly borne. Alone, we held our position until 12 o'clock when we were relieved. At 2 o'clock p.m., we were again ordered to the front. 
where we made two separate charges, now each in the face of a heavy fire from the enemy's battery of seven guns, whose destructive fire would have confused and almost disorganized the bravest troops. But these men did not swerve or show cowardice. I have been in several engagements, and I never before beheld such coolness and daring. Their gallantry entitles them to a special praise. I already observe the sneers of others are being tempered into eulogy. When slave men enlisted in the Union Army, their families often remained in bondage and thus were vulnerable to reprisals by their owners. Martha Glover of Missouri wrote to her husband about the hardship she had endured since he joined the Army. My dear husband, I received your last kind letter a few days ago and was much pleased to hear from you once more. Seems like a long time since you left me. I've had nothing but trouble since you left. You recollect what I told you, how they would do after you was gone. They abused me because you went and say they will not take care of our children and do nothing but quarrel with me all the time and beat me scandalously the day before yesterday. Oh, I never thought you would give me so much trouble as I've got to bear now. You ought not have left me in the fix I'm in and all these little helpless children to take care of. I, I was invited to a party tonight, but I could not go. I am in too much trouble to want to go to parties. The children talk about you all the time. I wish you could get a furlough and come to see us once more. We want to see you worse than we ever did before. Remember all I told you how they would do me after you left. For they do worse than they ever did, and I do not know what will become of me and my poor little children. Oh, I wish you had stayed with me and not gone till I could go with you. For I do nothing but grieve all the time about you. Write to me and tell me when you're coming. Tell Isaac that his mother come and got his clothes. She was so sorry he went. You need not tell me to beg any more mad men to go. I see too much trouble to try to get any more into trouble, too. Write to me, and do not forget me and my children. Farewell, my dear husband, from your wife, Martha. Speaking with a confidence gained from serving in the Union Army, a black soldier from Missouri promised his daughters that their liberation was at hand, then warned the woman who owned one of them that she was powerless to stop the advance of freedom. My children, I take my pen in hand to write you a few lines to let you know that I have not forgot you and that I want to see you as bad as ever. Now, my children, I want you to be contented with whatever may be your lots. Be assured that I will have you if it costs me my life. On the 28th of the month, 800 white and 800 black soldiers expect to start up the river to Glasgow. And they are to be general by a general that will give me both of you. Now, when they come, I expect to be with them and expect to get you both in return. So don't be uneasy, my children. I expect to have you. If Kitty Diggs don't give you up, this government will, and I feel confident that I will get you. Your Miss Kitty said that I tried to steal you. But I'll let her know that God never intended for man to steal his own flesh and blood. If I had no confidence in God, I could have confidence in her. But as it is, if I ever had any confidence in her, I have none now and never expect to have. And I want her to remember that if she meets me with 10,000 soldiers, she will meet her enemy. I once thought that I had some respect for them. But now my respect is worn out and I have no sympathy for slaveholders. 
And as for her Christianity, I expect the devil has such in hell. You tell her from me that she is the first Christian that I ever heard say that a man could steal his own child, especially out of human bondage. You can tell her that she can hold on to you as long as she can. I never would expect to ask her again to let you come to me because I know that the devil has got her heart set against that. That is right. Now, my dear children, I'm going to close my letter to you. Give my love to all inquiring friends. Tell them all that we are well and want to see them very much. And Cora and Mary, receive the greater part of it for yourselves. Don't think hard of us not sending you anything. I, your father, will have plenty for you when I see you. Spot and Noah sends their love to both of you. Oh, my dear children, how I do want to see you. Spots with rice. Miss Kitty Diggs. I received a letter from Caroline telling me that you say I tried to steal, to, to, to plunder my child away from you. Now, I want you to understand that Mary is my child, and she is a God-given right of my own. And you may hold on to her as long as you can, but I want you to remember this one thing. That the longer you keep my child from me, the longer you will have to burn in hell, and the quicker you will get there. For we are now making up about 1,000 black troops to come up through Glasgow. And when they come, woe be unto the copperhead rebels and to the slaveholding rebels, for we don't expect to leave them there root nor branch. We think, however, that we that have children in the hands of you devils would try your virtues the day we enter Glasgow. I want you to understand, Kitty Diggs, that wherever you and I meet, we are enemies to each other. I offered once to pay you $40 for my own child, but I am glad now that you did not accept it. Just hold on now as long as you can, and the worse it will be for you. You never in your life before I come down here, never did you ever give my children anything, not anything, whatever, not even a dollar's worth of expenses. Now you call my children your property. Not so with me. My children is my own, and I expect to get them, and when I get ready to come after Mary, I will have the power and authority to bring her away and to execute vengeance on them that holds my child. You will then know how to talk to me, I will assure you that. And you will know how to talk right, too. I want you now just to hold on to her if you want to. If your conscience tells you that's the road to go, then go that road and see what it will bring you, Kitty Diggs. I have no fears about getting Mary out of your hands. This whole government gives cheer to me, and you cannot help yourself. Black soldiers took pride in their service to the Union and looked forward to the new world of freedom they had helped create. Within their regiments, they organized to improve themselves and prepare for life as free men. A black sergeant explained the importance of education to his fellow soldiers and to his people in general. Sir, I have the honor to call your attention to the necessity of having a school for the benefit of our regiment. Now, we have never had an institution of that sort. We stand deeply in need of instruction, the majority of us having been slaves. We wish to have some benefit of education, to make of ourselves capable of business in the future. We have established a literary association which flourished previous to our march to Nashville. We wish to become a people capable of self-support as we are capable of being soldiers. 
My home is in Kentucky, where prejudice reigns like the mountain oak. And I do like that cultivation of mind. That would have an tendency to cast a cloud over my future life after have been in the United States service. I had a leave of absence a few weeks ago on a furlough, and it made my heart ache to see my race of people there neglected and ill-treated on the account of the lack of education. They're being incapable of putting their complaints or applications in writing. For the want of education, totally ignorant of the great good workings of the government on our behalf. We, as soldiers, will have our officers, who are our protection, to teach us how to act and to do. But, sir, what we want is a general system of education in our regiment for our moral and literary elevation. These being our motives, we have the honor of calling your very high consideration. Respectfully submitted, John Sweeney. No more. No of the war, efforts to reconstruct the Union prompted intense debate about the political ramifications of emancipation. Active in that debate were Americans of African descent who maintained that their service to the nation entitled them not only to freedom, but also to civil and political rights. Black Tennesseans petitioned a convention of white Unionists who were considering the reorganization of the state government and the abolition of slavery. Among the many arguments, they advanced for the readiness of black men to exercise the privileges of citizenship. They especially emphasized the role of black soldiers in saving the Union. In the years to come, this theme would reappear in countless demands by former slaves for full citizenship. Many, many. We, the petitioners, American citizens of African descent, natives and residents of Tennessee, and devoted friends of the great national cause, do most respectfully ask a patient hearing of your honorable body in regard to matters deeply affecting the future condition of our unfortunate and long-suffering race. First of all, we would say that words are too weak to tell how profoundly grateful we are to the federal government for the good work of freedom which it is gradually carrying forward. After 200 years of bondage and suffering, a returning sense of justice has awakened the great body of the American people to make amends for the unprovoked wrongs committed against us for over 200 years. Your petitioners would ask you to complete the work begun by the nation at large 
and abolish the last vestige of slavery by the express words of your organic law. <clears throat> now, many masters in Tennessee whose slaves have left them will certainly make every effort to bring them to bondage after the reorganization of the state government, unless slavery be expressly abolished by the Constitution. We hold that freedom is the natural right of all men, which they themselves have no more right to give or barter away than they have to sell their honor, their wives, or their children. We claim to be men belonging to the great human family, descended from one great God who is the common father of all, and who bestowed on all races and tribes the priceless right of freedom. Of this right, for no offense of ours, we have long been cruelly deprived. We claim freedom as our natural right. In the contest between the nation and slavery, our unfortunate people have sided by instinct with the former. We have little fortune to devote to the national cause, for a hard fate has hitherto forced us to live in poverty. But we do devote to its success our hopes, our toils, our whole heart, our sacred honor, and our lives. We will work, pray, live, and if need be, die for the Union as cheerfully as ever a white patriot died for his country. The color of our skin does not lessen in the least degree our love either for God or for the land of our birth. Near 200,000 of our brethren are today performing military duty in the ranks of the Union Army. Thousands of them have already died in battle or perished by a cruel martyrdom for the sake of the Union. And we are ready and willing to sacrifice more. This is not a democratic government. If a numerous, law-abiding, industrious, and useful class of citizens born and bred on the soil are to be treated as aliens and enemies, as an inferior, degraded class who must have no voice in the government which they support, protect, and defend with all their heart, soul, mind, and body, both in peace and war. The government has asked the colored man to fight for its preservation, and gladly has he done it. It can afford to trust him with a vote as safely as it trusted him with a bayonet. In this great and fearful struggle of the nation with a wicked rebellion, we are anxious to perform the full measure of our duty, both as citizens and soldiers. To the Union cause, we consecrate ourselves and our families with all that we have on Earth. Our souls burn with love for the great government of freedom and equal rights. This is a democracy, a government of the people. It should aim to make every man, without regard to the color of his skin, the amount of his wealth, or the character of his religious faith, feel personally interested in its welfare. Every man who lives under the government should feel that it is his property, his treasure, the bulwark and defense of himself and his family, his pearl of great price, which he must preserve, protect, and defend faithfully at all times, on all occasions, in every possible manner. America's Civil War was fought by the North and the South for very different reasons. The North fought to maintain the Union, while the South fought to maintain its failing economic power, which meant that slavery had to survive. 
But for those children of Africa who were enslaved, it was always a war for liberation. Legal freedom by no means guaranteed them inclusion into the social and political fabric of this nation. Nevertheless, these newly liberated people were undeterred in their quest for equality. You will please let me know if we are free and what I can do. She is the first Christian that I ever heard say that a man could steal his own child, especially out of human bondage. We wish to become a people capable of self-support as we are capable of being soldiers. Now, Your Excellency, we have done a soldier's duty. Why can't we have a soldier's pay? Nah, Mr. Lincoln, don't you think you ought to stop this thing? But when the war trumpet sounded over the land, when men knew not the friend from the traitor, the black man laid his life at the altar of the nation and he was refused. Robbing the colored people of their labor is but a small part of the robbery. Their souls are almost taken. Their gallantry entitles them to a special praise. I already observe the sneers of others are being tempered into eulogy. The patient, trusting defendants of Africa's climb have dyed the ground with blood in defense of the Union and democracy. And a just man must do hard things sometimes that show him to be a great man. Free at Last was made possible in part with funds from the Maryland Humanities Council through a grant from the National Endowment for Humanities. The letters were performed by Denise Diggs, Bill Grimet, and Tony Sindias. Maria Broom was our narrator. Dramatic direction was provided by Donald Hicken. Research and editorial assistance was provided by the editors of Free at Last, Leslie Rowland and Ira Berlin. Chris Zay and Lisa Morgan were our audio engineers. Our technical director and senior producer was Andrea Jackson-Gewertz. The executive producer was Mark Steiner. This is Mark Steiner, and I hope you enjoyed that presentation. Please be in touch at www.steinershow.org, see the rest of our work, and send me an email to let me know what you thought at mark, M-A-R-C, mark at steinershow.org. Thanks so much for listening.